Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. From London, I'm Katie Strick, and this is The Standard. This is a special festive episode taken from our latest podcast, London Love Stories with Katie Strick. This instalment features none other than Christmas and rom-com legend Richard Curtis. Want to hear more? Make sure you're following London Love Stories with Katie Strick wherever you get your podcasts. Colin and Rene laughing at their blue soup concoction in a flat above Borough Market. Liam and his son contemplating love on a bench together overlooking the Thames. Julia and Hugh clambering over that garden fence in Notting Hill. If you're not yet familiar with his own love story by now, you're almost certainly familiar with some of those he's written. The writer who's thought up everything from About Time to The Vicar of Dibley, and the man who practically invented the great British rom-com. Yep, Richard Curtis. One of the things about me in London, of course, is that when I wander around it, I see an enormous number of locations from my film. So to some extent, London's a very big set. It's been 30 years since the famed British screenwriter made his name with the 1994 hit Four Weddings and a Funeral. And 20 years since Love Actually earned him a second crown as the King of Christmas, too. Yep. Snow, turtleneck jumpers and grand running through the airport gestures are certainly some of the most memorable features from Richard Curtis's irresistibly cheesy movie collection. But there's one theme that runs through almost all of them, aside from love and the occasional sprinkling of December festivity. The city you're probably listening from right now, and the backdrop that's played a pretty key part in this series so far, London itself. I feel as though when I come to London, I'm just experiencing the world. I'm a great believer that love actually is all around and you know i never stop thinking that for all the terrible things that are going on in our world somewhere in london you know half a million people are falling in love i'm richard curtis and you're listening to london love stories with katie strick this is my love letter to london now we're going to do a full about time style winding of the clock to kick off this particular story to the year 1964. West Ham have just won the FA Cup for the first time in history. A little band called the Beatles have just embarked on their first world tour. And Richard Curtis, an eight-year-old Beatles fan at boarding school in Berkshire, has just taken his first visit to the great capital city that is London. He doesn't know it yet, but it's a city that will ultimately change the course of his life. Now, I was raised in lots of different countries, in New Zealand, the Philippines, Sweden, and I came to boarding school here. And so my first memories of London really are when we used to be allowed out from school. And so London was all about Leicester Square and the Prince Charles Cinema and the Pizza Land uh, in Leicester Square. So I remember coming out here to see, well, I don't know, Clockwork Orange and 
various other movies. So mainly from the very beginning, it was just a place where I could eat pizzas and see movies that I wanted to see. Pizza and popcorn aside, Richard finds himself with this funny feeling about London, even as a young boy. Whether it's the bright lights and bustling crowds or the association he has with it and his first ever trips to the movies, there's something mesmerising about it, something he can't quite put his finger on but can't quite seem to shake. It's to be the start of a roller coaster relationship with the capital that might just end up being the most romantic and long-term of his life. I do think it's, you know, full of romance. I, I've never quite been able to sort out why Dickens is just such a powerful figure in our all our imaginations and so sort of it's historically romantic because you so often just t- turn a corner and there's a cobbled street and there's a you know one of those you know woodenish shakespearean houses and everything like that so i find it historically romantic and then you know almost every time i've fallen in love and wandered by the side of the thames you know, contemplating suicide. Um, It's been in London, so it's certainly been the context of an enormous amount of romantic stuff for me. Richard's early years trip to the big city might have shaped him, but it's his move to London in 1976 that really cements his love affair with the capital he now calls home. He moves to Camden as a 20-year-old budding screenwriter and London quickly becomes the backdrop for what go on to become some of his most iconic films today. The bookshop in Notting Hill, the Southwark restaurant in that Bridget Jones fight scene, the Barbican church in Four Weddings. Yep, the one where Charles is punched, quite rightly, by his bride-to-be, Darkface. Anyway, as with most relationships, it's not all sunshine and rainbows and romantic trips to the big screen. I remember an extraordinary thing. It was at Christmas and I bumped into some girl I'd had a tremendous crush on, but I mean, years ago. And I said, oh, look, let me buy you a present, um, harking back to the past. And she said, oh, that's a lovely idea. Um, and she took me to Ralph Lauren. I mean, I meant I meant some wine gums. Uh, and, and then she tried on lots of, and I just looked at horror at the price tags of these coats that she was trying on. But thank God she was so stylish that none of them actually came up to her standard. And I think I did end up buying her a packet of wine gums. That particular crush doesn't quite make it off the block for our young Richard Curtis. A few years after he first moves to the capital, he settles in a corner of the city that goes on to steal his heart more than any other and may or may not have been the inspiration behind one of his most famous films. I've been living in, I've just moved actually, but I was living in Notting Hill for 30 years. So I think to some extent my prime, you know, thought when I'd say London is the Portobello Road. Um, I've walked up and down that road for half a lifetime. Um, So yeah, I'm very much West London, Hyde Park, you know, crawling along Bayswater in order to get to the bright lights and everything. But I've been here so long that in some ways London is just a huge chunk of my mind. I've always thought that if I ever wrote an autobiography, I'd just put a map of London on the front page with lots and lots of red dots with numbers by it and then describe the hundred most interesting things that have happened here during my endless life here. It's safe to say a fair chunk of those hundred stories would probably have something to do with his movies. 
a lot of one of the things about me in London, of course, is that when I wander around it, I see an enormous number of locations from my films. So, to some extent, London's a very big set. Um, so, you know, when I pass those ponds where Hugh Grant and Colin Firth had a fight, I think, well, there's, you know, Hugh and Colin. And when I go to Trafalgar Square, I remember a very windy night um, actually being on top of the National Gallery and trying to get a beautiful shot of the enormous Christmas tree heading down towards Downing Street, you know, and Greenwich, where we shot the second wedding in Four Weddings and, you know, my blue door in Notting Hill. So uh, it, to some extent, London's just one big, extraordinarily beautiful film set, which has managed to drag me through my career. Looking back through Richard's work now, there are a few recurring characters. Department stores dressed up for Christmas, grand declarations of love, Hugh Grant as a floppy-haired 20-something. But one prevails. London. A city that may have been described as one of the loneliest and most unfriendly cities in the world. Yet Richard has a knack for somehow romanticising in a way you'd be hard-tasked not to fall head over heels for. So what is it exactly about our capital city and its propensity for a good love story? I do think that the river's, you know, tremendously romantic, whether you're strolling by or crossing the bridges. I don't know if you remember in um, Four Weddings, Hugh chases after Andy McDowell on the embankment. And um, in Love, actually, Liam Neeson um, sits next to Thomas Brody Sangster on a bench and just with those astonishing buildings behind. So I think a lot of it's got to do with the river and a lot of it's got to do with nighttime. So basically, if ever you're shooting a scene and people are sorting their lives out, it's night and it's looking very pretty. I think about Kira Knightley running after Andrew Lincoln after he's shown her those those cards and stuff like that. You know, it's that thing of it being pitch dark of there being Christmas lights everywhere and then, you know, mainly um, artificially induced it's snowing, like at the end of Bridget Jones. Darkness, water and lights. Those are the ingredients for romance that Richard believes our city has by the bucket load. So what is it about Londoners themselves then? Well, it probably starts with that good old British sense of humour. It's the variation of the voices of the people who make all those announcements on the tube. Um, I always love that. I love when you get a characterful person who's actually being friendly to you as they advise you not to die by falling down onto the tracks. My favorite thing these days is that announcement which says, if you see anything that doesn't look right, please report it. And I'm always wondering whether or not I should report when someone's jumper clashes badly with the colour of their coat, because it doesn't look right. Uh, and I wonder whether or not if you report and say that hat doesn't go with that tie, whether or not someone will take the person aside and say, I'm sorry, sir, but um, that really doesn't look right. And I think you're going to have to take off either the scarf or the hat because they don't go together at all. I mean, I do love people in London, and I particularly these days love you know, the variety and the diversity of people in London. You know, you get such a... It's not... I, I sort of still feel in Paris, when you go to Paris, everybody's French. 
and everybody's mean. Um, but in London, in London, there's all kinds of, you know, from your original Cockney to your polite posho. Um, but now we've got such a rich blend of cultures and colours and, um, you know, particularly food and everything like that. I feel as though when I come to London, I'm just experiencing the world rather than only, you know, bumping into Miss Marple. Diversity of its people. That's the real magic that makes London the perfect melting pot for a good love story. But there's a diversity in the types of love he sees here too. If you sort of look at the curve of my movies, I think that um, they're kind of always thought of as romantic comedies, but a lot of them are as much about friendship as they are about um, romantic love and increasingly recently are much about family as they are about, you know, those are the three big loves, family, romance and friends. I remember my friend Helen Fielding who wrote Bridget Jones and when she was writing Bridget, I think I spent more time in her flat in Primrose Hill um, than I did in my own. Um, and Notting Hill, the movie, was inspired by the fact that I used to have lunch, dinner every Tuesday with the same set of friends and it was always exactly us and I had this dream while I was driving to Clapham one day what would happen if I turned up with Madonna? How would they react? Uh, and I knew how they'd react. One of them would be absolutely nuts because she was such an obsessive Madonna fan and my two hosts would never have heard of her. I certainly wouldn't recognize her and wonder why. So, you know, it's uh, London and friendship. You know, you need friends less when you're in love, but more when you're not. So as it were, it's almost like the mirror image of of um, of romantic love is having your friends there to, you know, pick up the slack when things go wrong. I'm sure a few of us can relate to that part. Let's take a quick break. In part two, Richard shares a few little secrets you might not know about the making of his most famous Christmas film and his dating advice for any single Londoners out there. 
curious stores selling incense and vegetarian food and stuff. So I've been delighted by how slowly it's changed in many ways rather than how swiftly it's changed for people like me. Five Guys there might not be on every street corner just yet, but there is a fair bit that has changed in those last two decades. We've seen seven prime ministers, new king, three mayors of London during that time not to mention how different the city's skyline looks today. So could he ever be tempted to make a new version of Love Actually? One that's more reflective of London in 2023? I mean, I, I don't think I'll do another one because Love Actually was the one of my films that was closest to a disaster, in fact. I mean, two months before it came out, it was an absolute mess. So I feel as though I've got lucky once. I don't think I want to risk it again. But, you know, there are things about Love Actually that are that I kind of wish I'd done. If I had 10 stories, we did, in fact, have um, a sort of LGBTQ story, but it got cut. And I wish I kind of feel I let myself down there. And what I was just saying, you know, the diversity issue is very different now. And it would have been lovely to make it sort of more culturally you know, rich to have had Hanukkah, to have had Diwali in there. I didn't sort of focus on that. So I do think that if I did it again, it would have a broader spread to it um, than, you know, than it does, than the film now does. With all those stories, it was very hard keeping people interested. When I, I kind of originally wrote the film like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I would just have one bit of each story, one after the other. And when I watched the film, it was as though I didn't actually care about any of the stories. You know, the moment you did an extra bit, you then lost interest and went to another story, then another story. So what we had to do was do A, B, C, 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 A again, um, D, D, F, you know. So it was, and it was like playing three-dimensional chess. Any scene could go after any other scene. So it was very hard. And the 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 um the final film is like I threw up the original script and put it back together in a completely different order. That was the that was the problem. I'm sure I'm not the only one who'd like to see a copy of that original script. Anyway, despite a few hiccups. Richard's scrambled together version of Love Actually goes on to become a huge global success, grossing a whopping $247 million and somehow managing to be held as one of the all-time classic Christmas films two decades on. Well, for most people anyway. I was just outside um, the Apollo event in the other day um, and I heard two people, um, there was a poster for a Love Actually sort of orchestral version and I, you know, heard a guy saying, oh, I must go and see that. I love Love Actually. And I drifted over towards him to say, you know, I, I wrote that film. And then his friend said, oh, God, no, hate that film. I never want to see it. I've never managed to sit through it. And I quickly turned away um, and walked off in the opposite direction as the scoundrel who'd made that piece of nonsense. Nonsense or not, there is certainly no arguing that Richard's films have helped to shape the way people around the world see London at Christmas today. Whether it's that giant tree in Trafalgar Square or the twinkling lights in the windows of those cute little West London news houses. So what is it about London at Christmas that makes such a perfect backdrop for a good love story? I mean, one of the things I'd say about London is I think it's cosy. 
You know, I'm, I'm completely obsessed by that thing of looking in other people's windows at night. Sorry, I'm not accusing myself of a crime here. I'm just saying that, you know, it's always cold outside and you look in and you can see a fire and you can see a Christmas tree and you can see the lights and all those things. The thing I love about Christmas is it's a deadline. You know, you've got it. That's why love actually is set at Christmas because I was trying to think of a time when if there were 10 people in situations, they'd have to sort it out by December the 25th. And I used to always think that as it were, I could seal the deal before Christmas. And I do think I bought quite a lot of red coats, like the ones that Martine wears in Love Actually, in the hope that it would change some girl's mind, but it, it never did. Well, maybe just the one time. Richard's own love story, which I promise we'll get to, might have taken a few decades of rom-com-worthy red coats to get through first. But that's not to say his own set of London love stories didn't take a few other forms in the years before it. That's the thing about London, he says. There's the love of family and friends, like those sitting around that kitchen table in Clapham every Tuesday, or his nights squirreled away writing Bridget Jones with Helen Fielding. But there's the love of strangers too. Those unpredictable yet strangely romantic examples of love Londoners show to each other every single day. A love of humanity. There's this guy who's selling the big issue at the end of one of our streets. And I've passed him a few times in the past few weeks and given him a bit of cash. And the last time I passed him, he said, will you be back tomorrow? And I said, well, probably, because I walk to the tube station every day. And um, I went, I passed him the next day and he reached into his bag, went through all sorts of things and took out a huge pot of honey. And he said, this is honey from my hometown. I think he came from Romania. And he gave me back a gift in gratitude for the little bits of money that I'd been giving him. This is a love stories podcast, however. And this is Britain's rom-com king we have here behind the microphone. So what are Richard Curtis's pearls of wisdom for that specific kind of love he's become so known for then? Of romance. How can Londoners find it when it can seem harder to find than ever? Often in our love lives, we allow ourselves to stumble into the same mistakes. And I think just sitting back and thinking, are there qualities that I really want from the person that I might fall in love with? And and to look for that. So I particularly, I remember when I was about 30, I suddenly realized that the thing I most wanted from someone I loved is for them to be talkative. I actually really realized I'd been out with a few quite quiet people and I was always filling in the gaps. And so you'd get into a car and you'd say, how was your week? And they'd say, fine. And you thought, oh my God, we've got 59 more minutes uh, to talk about it. So, you know, I think my advice to people who are looking for love is see whether or not you can actually spot. I want someone who's tall. I want someone who's quiet. I want someone who's chatty. Um, you know, I want someone who's generous. Um, I think maybe just try and limit the field of your search um, a little bit. It might be a helpful bit of advice. Richard did limit the field in his own life. And it turns out he did find his talkative person in the end. His wife, Emma, a director and broadcaster who's gone on to co-write several films with Richard and uh, still likes to make the odd appearance in his work today. This is Emma Freud. She's the, she is, she's the talkative one. 
never stops. <laughs> you found her. No, the fact that we managed to get 40 minutes without her interrupting is a miracle. I tried. <laughs> Richard and Emma's 40-year love story is certainly one worthy of the screen. They first met when Emma interviewed Richard about his work with Comic Relief for Radio 4 back in the 1990s and got married secretly earlier this year after 33 years, two proposals, four children and several red coat purchases from Richard's side. I think she's got three. But it's Richard's unique love story with London that's underpinned the whole thing. His whole life, in fact. Despite a few false starts, that young, Beatles-loving boy did get his big London love story that he dreamt of all those years ago. Quite a few of them, actually. I'm a great believer that love actually is all around and... You know, I never stop thinking that for all the terrible things that are going on in our world, somewhere in London, you know, half a million people are falling in love. That was a special Christmas episode of London Love Stories with Katie Strick for The Standard Podcast. Make sure you're following London Love Stories with Katie Strick on your podcast provider or hit the link in the show notes to hear more. 